0: Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. I'm Will Patch, Enrollment Marketing Leader at Niche. In this podcast, my goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices. Instead, look for the processes and questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. My guest today is Janice Chang-McConnell, Assistant Director of Graduate Enrollment Communications at Syracuse University's Maxwell School. Prior to coming to Syracuse in May, she spent three years in missions communications at Wells College, and before that was at Binghamton University. Janice brings enthusiasm and joy to her work, evident in her social presence and participation in the EMChat community. Perhaps most relevant, though, she also previously was a media manager for a romance publishing company. Welcome, Janice.
1: Hi, Will. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited here. Uh, I'm going to start off with two questions that I'd like to ask everybody. What's something you tried that didn't work, and what did you learn?
1: This is a great question, uh, and one that I thought really... Really long on just because I think there's an industry oriented uh, answer and there's the people oriented answer. And as a I still consider myself in many ways a young professional, despite this being probably I'm coming on maybe 10 years working in various capacities and uh, roles in higher education. But as a young professional, I think the people-oriented lessons that I've learned have stuck out to me the most. I think when you enter a workplace as a young professional, you immediately start needing to draw lines in the sand. You need to identify your boundaries of what is work and what does work mean to you and what does work look like to you and what all those things mean to your coworkers and supervisors and team members around you. The people-oriented lessons of failure that I've learned as a young professional are ones that have taught me what my boundaries are and how comfortable I am as a person at work with my coworkers and how vulnerable i should be or should not be how much i should share about myself and what drives me and what work means to me personally i'm a cheerleader by nature i'm a shot of caffeine it doesn't always work people don't always want cheerleaders around um, and so sometimes reading the room is super important it's probably one of the most important skills that i've developed as a young professional is knowing which version of myself i should be at work that has been the most valuable lesson
0: yeah, I kind of want to jump down tangent. There's the oversharing, where mm-hmm. all of your personal life comes into work.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: there's the, I'm at work. I'm in work mode. Mm-hmm. You know, these are my coworkers; They're not necessarily my friends. I guess, how long did it take you to kind of approach that? And what were those lessons that helped you get that balance?
1: It probably took me a good two or three years to realize what my boundaries were as a professional at work. I'm a relentlessly happy person by nature. That's not what's always needed at the workplace or at this specific meeting, for example. So it changes who you are as a professional, can change from project to project, from team to team, from meeting to meeting. It just depends on what works for you. But I think at the core of it, you should lead with who you are, with compassion, with caring, with consideration for other people and their perspectives.
0: Hey, I just wanted to pull out and replay that because it is so key to all leadership, I think to all authentic relationships. So here it is again. Lead
1: with who you are, with compassion, with caring, with consideration for other people and their perspectives. It took me a couple of years and many office parties and holiday get-togethers and lunch dates with people to realize this is how... I want to be at the workplace. This is how I want to present myself. This is how I want to make friends or not make friends. I think the most important thing I learned is that you don't have to be friends with your coworkers and you just need to work well with them.
0: Friendship and colleagues are not really the same thing.
1: It can be a really tough balance because I, I want to be friends with everyone immediately. It's an aspect of my personality that I actually learned as a young professional because it wasn't it wasn't as a parent back when you are in a school setting, for example. But at the workplace, there's so many stories and, and backgrounds and people might be bringing a lot of emotional luggage into the workplace. It's about figuring out who can be your friends and who doesn't have to be your friends, but as long as they are good collaborative teammates, that's really all you need. At Wells, because we had such a small team, I was able to really see things from an operation perspective, but also understand what are our enrollment goals and how do we achieve them from a marketing standpoint. I read this incredible book by Brene Brown, which is called Leading Greatly. Um, It's her uh, studies on vulnerability transposed to the professional workplace. She talked a lot about vulnerability at the workplace, but what that means for both leaders and then also just employees in general who work in a team-based setting. She talks a lot about armor to shield you from unfounded criticism, people's judgments, but also really make it difficult for you to be vulnerable at the workplace and show, show your team members and your supervisors that human side of you. It's amazing to me, because I've worked at institutions of different sizes and types, how siloed people can be even within their own teams when you don't include people in projects or take the couple of steps to walk to their office and talk to them and see things from their point of view, even if it doesn't change the process, it can be helpful. Most importantly, what it's saying to your coworkers and team members is that you care.
0: I agree, and I could have a whole episode going down this rabbit hole with you. But second up here, what practices do you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into the work you're doing?
1: The practices and new ideas that come into my work come from mostly other people. (laughs) I am a big fan of following people that I think are doing things really well in the same field of work that I'm in, but also people outside higher education. Because I work in brand and marketing and communications, there's a lot of content out there for business-to-business or business-to-consumer entities that I can follow for inspiration. So I'm on a lot of newsletters. I follow a lot of accounts on Twitter. I've liked many Facebook pages. Don't discriminate against the platform and the people that you follow because it's good to follow people who do the same things that you do but also do them in a different way. It's also good to follow people on the whole other end of the spectrum so that you know what's happening out there and that you are kept up to date.
0: I'm so glad that Janice brought this up because I have been on this soapbox for years. We have to keep up with what's going on in education but your best ideas can come from related fields or by looking at people who are doing similar work in different fields.
1: One of the marketing agencies that we used to work with at Wells, the the president of the agency told me something that has always stuck with me and is now one of my most valuable professional principles, which is one, do something and two, make it better especially creatives, can get really mired in the process of making it perfect. And not only making it perfect, but also making it work and have a really visible ROI to convince leadership that what you're doing matters. It's really important to get the train on the tracks and just start the train and keep it moving. So first step is do something. When you're looking at this pile of laundry that you have to fold, start with the first thing that you see, just grab it, fold it, put it away, and then go on to the next thing. Your second step should always be look back at what you've done and make it better. Don't underestimate the value of revisiting old ideas or processes. A lot of my new ideas and projects actually come from old ones. I'm looking back and seeing if how I can improve them just because something works and has worked doesn't mean it can't work better.
0: I think I'm paraphrasing a little here, but sort of that idea that perfection is the enemy of great Well, on the flip side here, I think what you're saying is that good enough is also the enemy of great. Yeah,
1: yeah. First, you have to get past the idea that what you do has to be perfect right away. It's almost a conundrum because you have to get past the idea that what you do has to be perfect. And then you have to be very comfortable with the fact that what you do isn't perfect and how can you make it better Just because it's meeting goals doesn't mean that you can't meet your goals in a more innovative or a better way. If you value innovation and creativity and making sure that you're not only meeting goals, but also doing it in a way that serves the audience that you're doing it for, it's going to bleed into your work. But then if you don't know what your value, your professional values are, you'll find that some days you're going to be working without realizing what you're
0: working for. So when you're working on all these, you're trying to keep improving and keep moving forward. What are some of the technology and tools that you're using to help craft and measure your communications?
1: So I've never worked at a workplace that had a project management software like Trello or Asana. So I've always made do with the amazing Google Suite. I keep my communications in a calendar. I find it helpful to merge with my own work calendar. Oftentimes it's Outlook the places you're finding inspiration for your content are the same places where you can find the useful measurements and benchmarks. So all those newsletters that I am subscribed to, my cat is on many schools and (laughs) colleges inquiry list. (laughs) So I look at all of them. I have a whole filing cabinet of materials from other institutions and I have entire binders of emails and communications that I've received. I stopped printing them out because it just became very not sustainable. <laughs> I have several email inboxes that are just email communications from other institutions and institutions of different type. because it's important to me to be able to, when I'm working on, for example, an app-pushed email, to see what what else is out there. How are other people saying it? And do we need to say it different? And if we do, how do we say it differently?
0: There was someone I was talking to that they did an exercise where they would have their staff go out and look at all the language being used by their competitors. And they just created a rubric Mm -hmm. and said, okay, if this is what everyone else is saying, let's cross off those terms. And we have to say how we are different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I I don't think you should be different for the sake of being different. You should be different because what you do is different. I remember asking our, my admissions team when they're out on the road to just grab, if it's okay, to grab materials from other schools and bring them back to me. So it's like every time they come back from the road, they have all this, these gifts for me <laughs> and it's great. I also spend a lot of time looking at other institutions' websites and how those websites change over time. You can start with your list of institutions that are often looked at in a similar way by your prospective students and see the different messaging that they put out over time. That's been very helpful for my process as well, just to understand what's important. And just because admissions and enrollment tends to be, well, up until this year, tends to be pretty cyclical. And there's a predictable pattern of communications that gets sent. It's helpful to not only observe other institutions, but also observe them over time so that you understand throughout the cycle, what are they saying and when are they saying
0: it yeah, that's really important in a snapshot. By
1: doing this, I've become big fans of a lot of institutions, (laughs) marketing and communications teams. So for all those of you who might be listening, I am a big fan (laughs) of what you're doing because I see it. I see what you're doing. I see what you're improving and I see when you're improving them. And I I just, I want to say a lot of you are doing an an amazing job. I look up to you and I gain inspiration from you. I also want to plug something else, a resource that I use often outside of higher education. It's a website called Really Good Emails. They are a Treasure trove of most of them retail, but there's some higher ed too. Of email newsletters or just transactional emails, trigger action based emails. They will catalog all these emails on their website and point out what is the read- readability of the content, is it accessible, are the calls to action visible, is it is this email doing a good job in what it's trying to do? They also have a YouTube series where they take one email and just break it down and analyze how well it's working, if it's working. I do, I, I love really good emails.
0: Great. That's great advice. I'll link all these. I've got a running list now of resources to link on the show notes. Thank you. <laughs> what are some ways that you're measuring communications there?
1: I'm a marketing communications professional who focuses mostly on email marketing. I have done a lot of written work, content copy, graphic design, web design. Most of what makes me really jazzed about waking up and going to work is is emails. And I, I love to say that at, at cocktail parties and family gatherings because people look at me like, huh? (laughs) I love emails. I think they have tremendous potential. I think they also have tremendous potential to be really annoying. So a big thing that I use to measure the effectiveness of the emails that I create for institutions where I am is, is it getting people to do the thing that we want them to do? And that immediately separates your emails into two. once transactional, you want them to take a specific action, apply now. Or informational, where you're just letting them know what's going on, or you are showing them a portion of your institution, your community, and who you are, and nourishing that relationship. And I think both have very unique measurements that you can use to see how effective they are. And I think for transactional emails, it's obviously, did they click? My personal struggle with transactional emails that have a clear CTA or a call to action is that a lot of leaders want to see, did they open it? Did they open it? A high open rate is good. You also want to make sure that your audience is taking the action that the email is sending them to do. So not only did they open but did they also click? Because that's the most important thing. And if they didn't click, if you have a high open rate, but they didn't take the action, what is something about the content that you could change for the next time to drive them to take the action? You are assuming that you're following good email send practices and you're sending your emails to audiences who you know will likely take this action. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sending them the email. You want to look at not only your open rate, but also did they take the action? When I'm talking to people about how effective this specific transactional email was, I will often mention, well, this had a low open rate. I would rather the audience that I'm writing for take the action than open the email and not take the action. So don't be discouraged for transactional emails by low open rates because you have to then look at, did they actually do the thing? You know that you reached the right people because they've taken the action that you want them to do. And not just because oh it's a high open rate you may have lost that group of people because either your content didn't fit their needs or they weren't the right audience for this content because they didn't need to take the action right now or they're not ready. On the other hand, for informational emails because it's just you're pushing content to your audience, you want them to get to know you better. It's, it can be harder to evaluate the effectiveness of, of these emails. And one thing that you can use for this is open rate. If you did link out to different places in your email, which hopefully you will because you, your email serves as the front gates to the community inside that is your website. So hopefully you're driving them to different portions of the website or website-related content that is intriguing to them. Did they open subsequent emails that you sent them in this particular nourishing campaign? Did you hook them in the first couple of emails so that they keep opening emails in this series? That's also really important and can tell you a lot I'm a big fan of A-B testing emails, whether it's something small, I've A-B tested emoticons or not emoticons, sender from a person or a team or even the color of the CTA or bolded and not bolded links. Take all the information and data that you can get Mm -hmm. and apply it towards improving your content strategy. The emails that I'm most proud of are personal and narrative. So it's recognizing that the students you are sending or families that you are sending this email to are people, human beings, and you are having a conversation with them. Emails can often feel very cold, right? I believe no matter the size or history or prestige of your institution, there are ways to establish relationships with your prospective students and families in a way that still feels personable. And email is a great way to do that. Good marketing, I think, will always be a heavier lift on the side of the team. For higher education specifically, I think it's worth it just because it's such a unique product. You're asking your students to spend a not insignificant portion of their lives on your campus, online or in person. It's an incredible financial investment. A lot of emotions go into this decision for both the students and their families. So they deserve more effort and more attention from the side of the people who are trying to get them there. So as marketers and communicators, you have a responsibility to these students and families to give them your best because this is a significant investment that they're looking to make. It's not buying a pair of shoes. It's not purchasing a car, even though purchasing a car is also a huge decision. It's up there with purchasing a home. That's at least how I see it. So I make a lot of people irritated. I think just ask them to respond back or accommodate their availability. Be there when they need us. Meet them where they are. It's more work for us, but there's a lot of people who work in higher education because they're passionate about helping people in the way that they can be helped. If you tap into that value that you have as a professional, most of the time, I think you'll be proud of yourself because that's the approach that you've taken.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the amount of storytelling that goes into TV ads and, and print ads yeah. for cars, and then you think about the impact on that life versus an education, that, when you're saying that, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking back, it's like, well, I would never say that I am who I am today because my first car was an 84-inch Cutlass <laughs> Cruiser wagon. But I would say mm-hmm. I, am, <laughs> I am who I am today because I went to Otterpin mm-hmm. Elementary, Benton Central mm-hmm. High School, Manchester University. I mean, those are the things that made me who I am. And yet, how little storytelling went into all those. You get a lot of the mm-hmm. facts and figures. Here's our placement rate, mm-hmm. here's what our grads are doing. It's not, here's who you will become. It's not, here's what current students are, are experiencing. Here's what students from your area are going on to do.
1: Well, first of all, I know my Corolla changed my life, so I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was my first car. Um there are some institutions that are realizing the need to have a relational approach. And oh, and because of recent, not, not so recent, but just the trend that social media has set where it's advocacy-based marketing now, it's testimonials and quotes and vlogs from people who are living the life, from students who are actually going through the thing or families who have made this investment and seeing its returns, whatever that looks like for them. Your marketing has to change with that.
0: We're recording this in early June. If you have a good memory, I don't know when this will be listened to by everyone. Early June is a (laughs) rough time uh, in the U.S. right now. Yes, telling stories, being honest. People are hurting a lot right now. Sending them a postcard with apply now with no reasons why, nothing about your community. That's a miss. That's a huge miss.
1: You have to fight back against what can often be a complacency for people who are working in higher education, who have worked in higher education for many, many years. I have often find myself in the position of convincing people to do the harder thing, like I've said before about the bigger lift, just because it takes more time for us and it's more effort for us doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. I think it's the least we could do for our students and families because they're making such a significant investment of their time and finances and emotions because it is a life changing thing. So I grew up in Taiwan where higher education is essentially fully accessible to people. There's a lot of testing in place that you need to go through, but it's a different educational structure. Coming here to live and work in the United States, I've had the privilege of being able to see it from different perspectives and remembering what education is, especially higher education, is like for my friends and families back home in Taiwan and then seeing our students and families go through this in America. United States higher education has to grapple with the question of, is a college education something that you want for everyone? Or should it be earned by everyone? And what does that mean? How are you measuring this? who gets to have a college education. Just because growing up in Taiwan, that wasn't a question that anyone really had to think about was if you tested well, you got in. It was very pretty straightforward. It wasn't as much of a financial burden and there were different there's simultaneously fewer options but also more options in terms of what you can do with a college education. We're a small nation. There's not nearly as many colleges and universities in Taiwan as there are in New York, for example, but personally, coming from a country that has a very different higher education system has really helped me being a student affairs centric professional here in the United States.
0: If you're okay with that, I'd love to link to that story you shared in the show notes, because that was really powerful for me that you can read every report on how standardized testing doesn't work, but there's not a lot of that qualitative piece.
1: Yeah. Thank you for linking to it on LinkedIn too. I really, I really appreciate it. I'm very flattered by how much it Seems to touch people. The point that I was trying to make is that there's this innate conflicting sense of what higher education wants to be in the United States, is reflected quite often in your marketing. Is you don't know if you want to rely on the prestige of your brand or if you want to rely on students' peer pressure or just social pressure that they have to go to college. And that's all you're relying on to help them make this decision. Or You want to let them know that this is part of their story, this is part of their journey, and this is how how education at your institution can help them achieve whatever their goals are, even if they don't know what their goals are right now. You're part of that journey anyway, which I think speaks to your point about there's not a lot of story-based marketing out there because i think institutions don't realize that that's something they need to do i think they're relying heavily on students just feeling like oh i have to go to college but there are students who are making more money than i will ever make on tiktok right now at 16 there are students who are using 3d printers to start their own businesses who are incredibly entrepreneurial especially during times of crisis these students won't feel compelled to go to college because they will have seen what they can do just by themselves so I think In order to show them that they belong there and that they could benefit from a degree at your institution, you have to take a story-based marketing approach.
0: I feel like it's part of this shift that people are viewing higher ed as all about the vocation. What's the outcome? What's your job? How much do you earn? That wasn't the goal of education. The goal of education is expanding the mind. Do you understand our history? Do you mm-hmm. about the social sciences mm-hmm. that are getting cut? It's not about these vocational training centers, and yet that's how it's being evaluated yes. so often today. There's still value in an education as an education, not as vocational training. A
1: hundred percent. How to navigate situations of moral and ethical crisis? There's so much that a lot of the soft skills. That you get from a college education are often overlooked when people talk about ROI or outcomes. Just because you go to this school and end up in a in a high paying job doesn't mean that you it makes you a better person. (laughs) And it sounds so pedantic, but I think that's at the root of what it should be. And it's really hard to tell students and families that that they should spend this amount of money in order to learn how to be a better person. (laughs) Recent news coverage of higher education hasn't helped that perspective.
0: Do you see value in critical thinking? Do you see value in reading Mm -hmm. comprehension? Do you see value in Mm -hmm. questioning and and ethics? You know, is Mm -hmm. that valuable? Or is it, okay, I check this box so that I can go into Mm -hmm. X, Y, Z career? Are you getting something out of your education or are you checking boxes?
1: And I think a lot of marketers and communicators that work in higher ed struggle, at least I struggle, in my advertising something useless to them. I think my time at Wells has really helped me being able to confront this question time and time again, just because we're so small and our entering class is often under 200 students, which means you get to know each and every student pretty well by the time they enroll and matriculate at your institution. I think marketers for higher ed have to think about, is this the right fit? Is this the right thing for this student? Because not all students at this current age are ready or need this part of their journey. What can be difficult and complicated is knowing where you stand on why you're doing this work and having that inform your daily processes of getting students to come to college.
0: We're wrestling with the heart of enrollment marketing. Yeah, business.
1: and if you, think, if you think too hard about it, you never get anything done. And I, I think it's yeah. an important question <laughs> that should be revisited periodically just to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons and if you no longer believe in the mission and you end up being the person just checking the boxes.
0: Let's, let's hope we never
1: get <laughs> I'm having fun.
0: That's good. Keep having fun. It's a great field. How much time do you spend in web analytics?
1: Yeah, I love web analytics. In the institutions I've worked at where that has been available to the admissions team, I find them to be super helpful. And especially if the admissions team has the ability to create landing pages or change things on the website to fit the digital communications or physical communications that are going out.
0: I wanted to jump back a little bit to something you had mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier. With your A-B tests, you're learning quite a bit there. How do you organize and store all of those results in a way that you can remember what you did, but someone else can learn from you as well? Uh,
1: Erratically, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) I, I haven't worked out a good system to properly document what I learn and when I learn it and what led me to change my process. I'm a big fan of making tutorials and manuals for people who might come into my position or who are just sharing my perspective for my work. I think cross-training is really important within an office. As a a marketer and communicator, it can be hard for other people to know why you're doing what you're doing. (laughs) And it's often hard if you don't make yourself known and what what you're working on visible. People can have a very vague understanding of what you're there to do and how easy slash hard it is for you to do what you're doing. That communications comes back in as a key piece of maintaining positive office relationships and just letting people know that you're on their team. And though sometimes your work will look different than their work, you're all working towards the same goals. A lot of what you're doing is not set in stone, right? That you you are going to look back to see how it's performed according to your measurements and industry benchmarks and how you will improve them from there. It's important to not work in an echo chamber of yourself branch out and talk to other people let them know what you're doing you you never know where those connections may
0: lead. Can you speak more about how you evaluate and benchmark?
1: Benchmarks can be really difficult to find especially if you're working within a silo. And you don't often get feedback on your work from people on your team or people outside your community. The biggest pieces that I struggle with are physical pieces. So um, viewbooks, books and, you know, as you know, viewbooks books can come in many shapes and sizes and fold outs and fold-ins and, and yep. QR codes and whatnot. It can be hard to evaluate because you, you don't have much outside anecdotal evidence of how how well they're working for students. I've more or less hired co-workers' children <laughs> um, in paying them with experience <laughs> for, how, for how they feel about certain materials that we have. And just because you want to hear from people who is within the age range that you're trying to target. And, so, and a lot of times it's not just student specific, it's also for families. So you want to make sure that the parents are responding to them in a positive way sometimes you have only a handful of anecdotes that you've garnered during campus visits or in-person meetings, and that's the best that you have. At that point, I turn to other people, other creators in the same field and see what they're doing and see what they're talking about what they're doing. So other enrollment marketing podcasts like HA31s um, are really important to tune into other voice, professional voices because it opens doors that you can then look into and see if that's something. That also works for your institution.
0: The term that coworker used that I've co-opted is promising practices versus best practices. Yeah. That you're looking for what works there that you might be able to take pieces of and adapt rather than bolt on. Yeah,
1: I I um I for one love drone photography and videography. I think drones are super cool, but I think they're overdone in higher education, and I didn't realize that they were overdone until I heard it on an H.A. 31 podcast. That's important. Listening to other voices of other professionals who are doing the same things, we are doing the same things in different ways, and then realizing, oh, this thing that I think is super cool, I think the jury is is still out on QR codes, will it work for our institution and what we're trying to do?
0: Yeah, I mean with drones, there's so many yeah. cool things you can do, but if I see one more video where <laughs> it's a sunrise and the drone is slowly <laughs> rising up over campus and like I have They're flying angry. past the bell <laughs>
1: tower and yep. Yeah. <laughs> and there's <yep>. trees.
0: <laughs> yep. well, oh,
1: and happen. by the way, those trees are just only there during this two weeks in summer and then it's snow the rest of the year. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's my upstate <laughs> New York coming out. <laughs>
0: So I think you mentioned a little bit there, you do some user testing with the students, uh, but who else is involved when you're planning out your communications?
1: That's a great question. As many people who want to be involved in planning my communications as they feel inclined to be, I think it depends on your team and the structure of your team. Obviously, you want to have someone, you you never want to be the only person looking at your communications. There should always, always, always be a second, third, fourth pair of eyes looking at what you've created before it launches. You should always talk to people who you're creating the content for, even if it's just one person, even if you can only get one current student to take a look at this new poster that you've made and get their feedback. Because then if they catch something that you never thought of before. And so in the planning stages for communications, I think it's important to include as many stakeholders that have a hand in the pie as you can. I think as a young professional, I often feel like I'm in, infringing on people's time and making them do more work than they're already doing. But that's when I try to remind myself that I am here for the same goals that, as they are and that we are all on the same team. And they could say no. They could just say no if they're too busy or they don't want to be involved, but at least I've asked and they will remember that I've asked and they will remember that I am someone who is open to including them in the process. As a marketer, your role, your your work is often the most visible, but the effort that you put into the work is often invisible. So that can be a really hard balance because your work invites a lot of critique, but people don't often know what you went through to do the thing. In the planning stages for communications, I I think it's important to make the effort to reach out and they can take the olive branch or not. It's up to them, but at least you've done your part.
0: How do you avoid that too many cooks in the kitchen situation where everyone is an expert on marketing?
1: Oh, great question. I have a very controversial opinion, which I think everyone is an expert on marketing because everyone is being marketed too. Oh,
0: that's a good point.
1: Yeah, whether or not they have the pedigree to go with it is not relevant because they are, at the end of the day, people who will be consuming your content, whether willingly or unwillingly. I think it's important to come from that perspective and not dismiss people's ideas and opinions. Of course, there are ideas and opinions that don't fit in the plan or don't fit in the strategy or just are nuts, (laughs) but I think it's important to give them the space and airtime. I would rather hear a dozen ideas that are wacky and completely unrealistic than miss the one very important feedback that will change my strategy for the better. Too many cooks in the kitchen can definitely be an issue, but in order for the banquet to come out right, you sometimes need them. It doesn't mean that you have to let them hold the pots and pans. They can look and direct you and take a look at all the ingredients. And I'm running amok with this analogy (laughs) because I'm having fun with it.
0: You're telling a story.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm a a creative writer at heart. So yeah, don't give me a juicy analogy because then I just, I just (laughs) go (laughs) insane.
0: But that analogy fits well because everyone is an expert on food because everyone, everyone eats. Eats, everyone's yeah. <laughs> expert in marketing because everyone consumes the marketing. There you not go. everyone can create. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not everyone can create, but everyone can have a great opinion because everyone consumes.
1: Yes. Should it always affect your strategy and hold it up for six months? No. But should you listen? Yeah. You should listen.
0: Hey, it's Will again. The phrase I was alluding to there was too many cooks spoil the broth. And as I listen to this, I think I got it wrong. I think that what Janice is getting at here is that many cooks make the broth even better. And maybe that's the way we need to think of it rather than too many as an excess. Think of it as having the diverse voices making it better. Okay, back to the interview. We got into this a little bit. When you're getting the feedback, how do you make sure that you have the right voices to make sure your pieces are inclusive and speak to the needs of diverse audiences?
1: Oh, great question. So when creating pieces, how do, I, how do I make sure they're inclusive and speak to the needs of diverse audiences?
0: We'll save the easy questions for that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that higher education tends to be pretentious and parochial. So that should be the first step is to understand that higher education has this tradition of being inaccessible and really hard to understand. But how you can use that to inform your work in marketing communications is that to start with the basics. First of all, readability. Is your content readable at an accessible level for your audiences? There are a lot of websites out there off the top of my head. I think the Hemingway app is a good one. I think there's a website called readable.io, I think. I believe it's a paid service, but I could be wrong. There are many websites and services out there that can check your content for readability. There are a lot of color contrast websites out there that can check your graphics to make sure that it's easy on the eyes for people with different visual impairments. There are also a lot of guides out there that can tell you how a bilingual person will will read this content and the visual hierarchy of this email or this particular landing page, what their eye will be drawn to first, and whether or not that's obvious to them. I think I believe a lot of agencies and partners in higher education will help you with that. The important thing is to understand that your audience may come to your website with fear and intimidation because their perspective of higher education and the university is that it's hard to understand and inapproachable. Most importantly, some people in your audience will feel like they're not good enough, and especially your first-generation students whose parents didn't go through this process and they're navigating it on their own. They'll feel unequipped with the proper tools, and they can very easily be left out of the narrative just because you chose to say things in a certain way that is hard to understand. There's also the assumptions that you are making about your audience. As a content creator, it's inevitable. No matter what your creation process is, you are imagining an audience in your head for who you're creating this content for. With that comes the set of assumptions that you're making about the audience. Most of the assumptions will be true, will be a basic, like they are a specific age or they come from a specific geographical region. But there are also many implicit biases and assumptions that you might be making about your group that are not helpful. So I think take a moment to evaluate and check what you're assuming about your audience and why you're making those assumptions can help inform your content creation and make you more inclusive. More frequently than not, you'll be asked to make certain content decisions by leadership who don't understand that this particular approach is not inclusive or it's inaccessible to certain groups of people. And that is your role if you are able to, to push back and question leadership decisions and you don't even have to do it in a way that is aggressive. I think there are ways to say I understand why you're doing it this way and oftentimes that's the way the institution has always done them, but make it no clear that it's not a good enough reason for you and to say I understand, but I think we should also think about this group of people or this set of needs that are not being met right now or this group of people that may feel like we are making certain implications through our message that we don't intend to Can we say it a different way? Trust your gut. When you feel like you need to question the content that you're creating or the way that it's being put out into the world, push back. Talk to people. Make yourself heard, even if it doesn't ultimately change what's being done. You just have to start
0: the train. What you say is much less important than how it is heard. And I think that's the hard thing because you can craft one email, maybe 90% of people read it and understand it one way. Of 10% take it entirely a different way, you know, I don't know that's a a successful piece because (laughs) you're to people out. Mm -hmm.
1: I think understanding that your students, if they want information, they can find them. This is not an age where information is kept behind closed doors. There are so many places where your prospective students can find facts and figures and outcomes and alumni information is not your website where you don't have control. So in the places where you do have control over your own narrative, shouldn't you make sure that it's really, really good? Shouldn't you make sure that it speaks to the people that you are trying to communicate with in a way that resonates with them? Otherwise, they're just going to go elsewhere and find that information on their own, and you lose that connection, and you lose that touch point to be able to cultivate a relationship with them that where you have control of the narrative.
0: There's one soapbox I can pull out stop saying you can apply today they already know that <laughs> tell them tell them the stories of who will they become what will they experience if you want to focus so heavily on the application tell them what it's like to fill out an application mm-hmm. but don't just tell them they're able to apply
1: right They, yeah it's having faith in your audience and having faith that students who are the right fit for your institution will respond to your messaging I had a supervisor that was instrumental in helping me become the professional I am today. Her name is Kishan Zuber, and she now works at Wilkes University. She once told me that her mission is to lead in higher education and to promote the benefits of higher education to students that respond to that message. It's not institution-specific. Her mission at the end of the day is to get prospective students and families to think about higher education and how it can make their lives better. That definitely changed the way that I approach my work because I'm no longer looking at it from you should come to this particular school, but you should think about going to school at all. To paraphrase what she told me then, it was, we want to show them why it's important to apply, not to get them to apply, because even at the end of the day, if they don't apply to our institution, they will have thought about higher education as a possible avenue for their future. If that's the case, then she's done her job as a higher education professional. And that really changed my perspective on why I do the work that I do. I try not to get too stuck on specific calls to action that they didn't fulfill because I would like to believe that students, when they see content from us, they are thinking about higher education as an opportunity and they are in the driver's seat for that, where they can choose to make it happen or choose to let us help them make it happen. And that's different from student to student or from institution to institution. For all of us, at the end of the day, our mission is to promote the benefits of higher education and to get students there that want to be there
0: you're not just affecting one person in the recruitment cycle because they can talk to their friends, they can talk to their family, their children. We can't always think about everything as a, well, we didn't hit our mark this cycle, but if you do a great job, you're going to make next cycle easier and the next cycle easier. Definitely.
1: The ripple Mm -hmm. effects of your marketing, you can't really measure in any definitive way and you just have to trust that it is having an effect.
0: Janice, I'd love to keep talking all day, but I think you have work to do as well. I really <laughs> appreciate you making time for this. We're really going to, to take a lot away.
1: Here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: This was great. And where could people find you if they wanted to follow up?
1: My Twitter is at Dear Preferred, Dear underscore Preferred. But you can also find me on LinkedIn, uh, Janice Chain McConnell. Connect with me. And we were. I'm at Syracuse University currently. Reach out to me if you just want to chat, uh, if you want a soundboard for your ideas, you. if you just want to vent. Being part of EM Chat on Twitter has been really a defining moment for me, for my own professional trajectory. And it's led me to meet Will. It's led me to meet so many people that are motivating me every day in my work and showing me how it's done and reminding me why I'm here. So definitely join us on Twitter on Thursdays for EM Chat. It's an ongoing conversation through the hashtag. So there are so many great communities. I can't say enough good things about Twitter for professional networking. I also love to attend conferences. Um, so want to meet up at conferences? That'd be great.
0: I know for me too. So much my professional development. I owe to Alex and Janielle starting will start EM Chat. Thank you so much.
1: Oh my god, did that make sense? <laughs> I feel like it did be <laughs> <me. laughs> <laughs>